Hi everyone, this is John from Cosmos School. Welcome to another episode of Cosmos with a K. Today I'm talking to Tyler Cohen. He is an economics professor at George Mason University. Um, he's the director of the Mercatus Center, which is a think tank. And he's written dozens of books on economics and related topics and runs the blog Marginal Revolution and does many more things. He's a great follow on Twitter. And today we'll talk about a broad, broad range of educational topics, such as why it's important to give less homework to students, about the Swiss science culture, and about the low university completion rates, among other things. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cosmos School podcast. I'm here with Tyler Cohen. Um, Tyler is an economist. He's an economics professor at George Mason University and also the director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Hi, Tyler. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for making time and being on the podcast. It's a great honor. Thank you. Hello from Northern Virginia. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we're doing this over over a video call actually i'm located in istanbul currently so it's fun all right tyler let's um get started um the first question i have is inspired by an intelligence square debate i heard with peter thiel and and the question is should more people go to university it depends on the context in which you set that question i think the biggest problem right now for many u.s schools is that the completion rate is very low. So it's hard to find fully reliable figures, but say for many state schools, the percentage of students who complete the degree in four, maybe five years can be well below 50%. Mm -hmm. So I think what we need to do is raise that completion rate. The idea that you're gonna put more people through the system and make those completion rates even lower, uh, that seems to me a big mistake. But that said, in the long run, steady state, if we could boost completion rates, I think ideally you would like more people going to higher education. But I would say at the moment, we have too many going, too many who start and don't finish, don't even want to finish. I've had under undergraduate students who just never come to class. They don't even want to be in college. They hope if they fail a few classes, their parents will let them off the hook and say, mm -hmm. stop going. So just more people through the final, I'm opposed. In the long run, a way to make it work for more people, I'm in favor. And, and why do you think that most people, or not most, but like a lot of people don't complete the university education they, that they started? I think the problem is usually discipline, uh, not IQ. So if you're not going to be very ambitious and you will just end up working in a kind of low quality service sector job, the classic anecdotal example is to be a bartender and have mm -hmm. a master's degree well, do you really need to finish your undergraduate degree? Well, maybe, in fact, you do or you should, but it doesn't feel that way. The benefits from finishing seem pretty far off. You might be a personality type not well suited to higher education. Take a very smart person like, you know, John Lennon in The, in the Beatles, very much a rebel. Was he really someone who should be sitting in a classroom 15 hours a week? Uh, hard to imagine that's the case, right? Even if he's not going to become, you know, a great rock star. So mm -hmm. I think uh, it's mostly a personality type issue. And then also support from parents is not necessarily there. And those are big cultural problems, right? It's not 
necessarily the fault of the schools, but I think we need more flexible learning modes so that people who are poorly disciplined or rebellious, or maybe they're disciplined in some other area. Don Lennon was very disciplined when it came to, you know, composing music. Uh, school has to be more for them. Um, just to come back to the example you said, like, you know, having a master's degree and then being a bartender, is that, do you think like a lot of people don't see the value of education, even though they are smart and disciplined and just make a simple calculation saying, well, this education is going to cost me, you know, this much in cash and also, and also the opportunity cost of my time. So I'd rather, I don't know, um, do something else. Correct, but I think it goes beyond that. Most of all, they don't enjoy it. So when someone tells you, you're going to spend four or five years doing something you don't enjoy, and it will in, in some way humiliate you because you know you're smart, but it will be giving you that C minus, uh, that's a huge disincentive. Uh, most of us would not do that. So if someone told me, I've got to do soccer practice for four and a half years, which you know probably I'm not very good at at all, I don't think I would do it. Uh, like, why should I, I figure if I'm demoralizing myself for four years running, that somehow can't be the right track to be on. And, you know, even when that's a mistake, we, we shouldn't just dismiss that intuition. There's something to it. Mm -hmm. So how would like, uh, how would you change the higher education system to support more John Lennon's in this case? Well, I think the key issue is to start with what in the U.S. we call K through 12. I don't think higher ed on its own can actually do very much. But to get back to your question, mm -hmm. higher education, I would have many more options for online classes for people who want to finish more quickly. I would have classes be much shorter. I think students should sample a wider variety of professors. I would have more learning modules. Uh, I would use the internet more. Uh, your project to teach people science through virtual reality I would allow a lot more experimentation with ideas like that. To be clear, I don't think those will solve the problem, but I think maybe, you know, for five, 10% of students, they would make a significant difference, especially students in the military, students with disabilities, students who may be caretakers of children or their parents, uh, students who are a very small school, say in the American Midwest, we could make their experience a lot better. I'm not sure any of those cure what I would call the John Lennon problem. <laughs> so, but let's say, um, I think there's a good segue to, um, to my next question, actually, you know, where... Way less homework, you know, for K through 12. <laughs> that would be a priority idea I would start with there. Let's go back to the 1970s levels of homework. Which was no homework? Not, no homework, uh, but if you were smart, you could kind of wing it and get by and work on your own projects. And that's the world I grew up in. And I spent my spare time studying economics and philosophy. Mm -hmm. And today you can't do that. Homework just fills your time. You're expected to have all these crazy extracurricular activities to get into a top college. Your life is far more regimented. Uh, to me, that's a huge setback. It's a major tax, I would say, on, on men, young boys in general who just seem to like homework less on average than young girls do. Mm -hmm. So that would be my number one recommendation. Uh, maybe cut homework levels to a third of where they're at now. Okay, but like um, you mentioned, even if you like, let's go into K, K through 12 a little bit now, um, you know, less homework, but also 
all these tracked activities, you know, that like parents have their kids do, do like um, extracurricular classes, um, volunteering, um, um, to getting tutors for their kids, um, homework and so on, just so that on paper this kid looks good, that it can get into a great college later on, you know, 12 years later, right. basically. Um, to me, that also seems like, you know, not, not the right thing to do, but, but somehow parents are incentivized to act that way. I mean, not all parents, but a lot. Where does it come from? Well, competition for status. Also, the higher the level of income inequality in a society, the harder parents will work to make sure their kid is on the correct side of the threshold, being a higher earner. But I think reform has to start with colleges. So Harvard needs to change its standards. It needs to let in many more people. It needs to rely more on standardized tests. I think we can have better tests than just the GRE, tests to figure out uh, how good a person will be in some subject area. So I would make the whole process more impersonal, let in many more people, not be impressed by some endless list of volunteer activities. I would actually count those as a negative, not as a positive in any way. Mm -hmm. So, but like in reality, the reason, I mean, one of the reasons those elite schools are, are, uh, are um, elite is also because of the, of the scarcity, right? If like, if they would let in the double or triple the amount of people each year, then the exclusivity would kind of like diminish a little bit. So, but I think if Harvard tripled admissions, uh, the student quality would not decline at all. I think it arguably would go up. I think the quality of Harvard faculty would decline, but I'm fine with that. Harvard faculty or not, that's the real issue. There's plenty of great students who are as good as the ones getting in right now. I agree. I agree. And but what I'm talking about is more about the signaling effect that you know that Harvard or other elite schools are elite because they just accept a sm small number of people. There's like this elite club kind of, and if you, if you open it up and there are undoubtedly, you know, a lot of more smart people that could go in there, um, then it loses this, might lose this elite status. And um, I think Howard and others think, think about the problem that way. And in my opinion, we'll never, we'll never open up um, you know, I mean, I'm not optimistic, people. but we do see two top schools, Yale and University of Chicago, that have opened up somewhat. Mm -hmm. And it's not obvious to me that their reputations have fallen. Okay. Uh, now, they haven't opened up by 3x, but I'm not entirely pessimistic. I mean, the world did say, you know, get rid of slavery in the American South. We've made some pretty significant reforms in the mm -hmm. face of major opposition. This one I would bet against, but you know, we need to work for it and carry the word and hope these school boards at some margin have a conscience. Yeah. And I give it, you know, a 10, 15% chance of happening. In, in what time frame? Say the next 20 or 30 years, not next year. That's mm -hmm. simply out of the question. What can, uh, let's say I'm an education entrepreneur or I'm a person that wants to go into education and make a profound impact. What can I, what do you, what's your advice? What should, you know, young people do to accelerate change on this front? Well, the biggest improvement we've had in education by a huge margin is just the existence of the internet. Mm -hmm. So to put good content on the internet, however it is you do that, I think is a major advance. And this is happening, I mean, literally every day. 
look at the good side of YouTube, what mm -hmm. it can teach you. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just phenomenal as an instructional medium. Uh, in many ways, much better than Wikipedia. And that's not always what gets publicized. So, you know, I've built my own online educational site for economics. It's called Marginal Revolution University. Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of opportunities for people to just get out there and unilaterally put stuff up, see what happens. Yeah. Um, how do you think about the, the problem of kind of like content? Like, you know, I think it's pretty clear that nowadays you can learn everything for free, basically, in the internet, like that, that you couldn't do, you know, 20 years ago um, or even 10 years ago, probably. Um, but like there's a problem with the, with the certification, right? If, because most people learn, uh, learn um, when they're young to get a, in the end, you do, it, you do it to get a job somewhere that's interesting, hopefully, that, you know, pays well um, and that you enjoy doing. Like, you know, it's like an ordinary person's motivation is that that's like the goal of education right. um but like and, and therefore like institutions you know that are like um have a reputation like good schools or good colleges help you get a more interesting job let's say um it doesn't really matter what exactly you've learned during those years it matters more that you kind of like completed that step um so my I mean, you know, with the internet education, um, that's kind of like the problem. How can you, if you're one of 100 applicants to a job, how can you prove that, you know, you're better, um, you know, you know more than the others that went to Harvard, but you just watched YouTube? Well, as you know, if it's the world of programming, there's GitHub and other mm -hmm. ways of measuring your quality. But mm -hmm. I don't think certification is the main problem. Somehow I feel... If online education is good enough, you'll be able to prove to businesses they should hire you. I think the actual problem is there are some things you cannot learn very well online. So there are some kinds of social acculturation where you need to be with other people to learn, say, the variety of personality types out there, mm -hmm. to be properly mentored and to be inspired in a particular way, to have your aspirations raised. It seems to me that happens especially well through face-to-face -face interactions. It's not impossible through the internet, but the idea that you fix upon a role model and that becomes emotionally vivid to you and it changes the course of your life. Uh, I'm not sure the internet will ever be so good at that. So I, mm -hmm. I don't think education is likely to be mostly online for most areas, but we can unbundle, like what is face-to-face -face education actually good at and make it much more explicitly directed toward those ends and not just shoving a lot of information down your throat, where indeed the internet is far, far better. So I guess that's my vision. Uh, we need to restructure face-to-face -face education to really think through seriously its comparative advantage. And we haven't done that. So you go to all these classes where they just toss information at you and you feel either like, I don't need this period, or if I do, I should just be reading the internet. And that's again a waste. Face-to-face -face isn't even giving you what it ought to. It should be giving you like coaches and inspiration and mentors. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So if you look at K through 12 education, you know, um, do, do you think um, kids should start working real jobs as part of their K through 12 education earlier, let's say after middle school? 
Well, it depends what you mean by real jobs. Uh, I don't believe in child labor. No. But let's say a 16 or 17 year old should have a part time job, as I did. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a big advocate of that for teaching you responsibility, how real world institutions work, just what customers are, and something about businesses. So, whenever that's possible, I think we should do it. The rate of employing teenagers has dramatically fallen in the United States. To me, that's a major negative. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would try to reverse that. Yeah. You know, there being too much homework is one reason, not the only reason why it's fallen. Minimum wage hikes are another possible reason. Yeah. So I would yeah. exempt teenagers from minimum wage hikes. Yeah. I, I I agree. And what I meant by real job is not, you know, not like a um like a summer job where you do something that's not meaningful just to get like lowing and more um you know, a loan mowing um to get money to buy like a PlayStation game, which Again, it teaches something. It's better than not doing that. But what I meant is more like incorporating it into your K through 12 education that, you know, part of the time um, you don't actually go to school, but the school works with companies that almost like an internship um, you can have, you can work at a real company, have like a real impact in a small sense in that company. And it's not like, you know, you, where you learn how the real companies work out there and you don't only do it to get some pocket change. Well, I'm fine with that, but I'm also a big believer in just arbitrary jobs. Mm -hmm. Like I wrapped uh, produce, fruit in a produce department in a grocery store. That has had nothing to do with my subsequent career, but still it was great for me. And sometimes the variety and arbitrariness is part of the value. So I wouldn't obsess over like every job you have as a 16 year old has to be on the stepping stone to your apprenticeship. And then one day you're like a German worker in some Mittelstand firm and <laughs> Like you're part of chemical engineering and you never had to go to college. I mean, if we can do it, great. But I don't think the vision has to be that. Just getting people out there working, I think, is a lot of the value. Mm -hmm. And the more the economy is service sector jobs, the harder actually the German model is to sustain. And the more you just want people to just get some work experience, period, and deal with the world. Have a crummy boss who yells at them. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Um, d d so, you know, talking of Germans, um, vocational schools, you also, also mentioned earlier, in these states, it's almost, you know, it's, it's a very small fraction of the, of the people do them. Um, why and how can we get more people to, to do them? Well, I think vocational education in the U.S. is underrated. A lot of it goes on at community colleges mm -hmm. or in somewhere like the Cal State system. Uh, I suppose I think at the margin we should have more, but I don't think the U.S. <clears throat> is nearly as behind as many people think. And also, if you think about the American economy, we don't have the kind of manufacturing prowess that Germany does. And those are the jobs where apprenticeship seems to work best. So uh, uh, well, I, would argue I don't think there are major gains for America there. I think there are modest gains from doing more. What about vocational schools for computer science, um, for programming? It's a very vocational job. Like, I think it's a perfect candidate for vocational schools. And we see it, you know, with all the boot camps. Those are basically vocational education. Sure. That is uh, great. But you, you'll notice they're often not traditional schools. They're modules, like yeah. shorter periods of time, more intense, uh, you know, kick people's butt around a bit more, very mm -hmm. clear credential and certification. 
it's working very well right now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at you know like stuff like Lambda School, where where um, it's very tangible. You do it nine months, and there's a really high probability if you finish it that you will get I don't know um, a significant salary increase and a better job after that. So it's like very short term, so people understand what's going on, um, and people do it right. So. And they seem to have real credibility. But again, that sector is not my worry. I think that sector, it's not quite being optimized, but it's going well. It's the people who end up with lower to mid-tier service sector jobs, which are stagnant in terms of future earnings. That's the Mm -hmm. part of the market where education and labor markets are somehow not working well. And I'm not sure what kind of boot camp is going to work at that tier. Yeah. Like would you have boot camp, you know, here's how you work in a Starbucks. <laughs> I mean, Starbucks itself does that, right? Uh, I mean, that's okay. But I'm not sure how it gets people on a later a higher earnings trajectory. No, probably doesn't. <laughs> um, so I just want to go back to higher education for, um, you know, as you know, Peter Thiel says that we're in an education bubble. Do you agree? Well, the word bubble is a little tricky. I would say this. I think there will be, or is already a student shortage at many institutions of higher education. We're seeing large numbers of closures and mergers. Uh, Business schools and law schools are going under, not the famous ones you've heard of, but large numbers of smaller, less high status programs. And I think that will continue. Now, is that a sectoral shift? Is that a bubble? Uh, I'm more comfortable calling it a sectoral shift, but I think higher ed is shrinking and it's former dream. We would just rely on more and more Chinese students coming. Uh, clearly that's not going to be the case. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let me see. Um, yeah. Speaking of Peter Thiel, um, the Thiel foundation, good or bad. Uh, they do many things I'm not aware of. Uh, the grants I've seen them make have seemed to me very creative and innovative. But just to be clear, uh, I have applied for money from the Teal Foundation and, and received it. So, uh, you know, I'm not a completely objective observer here. Um, so, sorry, maybe what I mean more is about, um, you know, the program he does where he um, gives um, uh, young the Teal adults. Fellows. Uh, sorry, Teal Fellows. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I've met a bunch of them and they seem very impressive. Like Laura Deming is one of them. Uh, Vitalik Buterin is another. I've never like viewed the program writ large. Uh, But again, I'm all for experimentation in higher education and philanthropy. So, you know, I would say full steam ahead. Yeah. Um, um, Just to maybe open a bracket, um, you run Emergent Ventures, um, which also gives out grants to uh, individuals who work on interesting projects. Um, do, you see, do you see something like Emergent Ventures um, as an alternative to, to a higher education system? Uh, I think it's an alternative to mainstream philanthropy. Okay. So the way Emergent Ventures works, it's a very minimal application process, very minimal. You get a decision quickly. You don't have to go through like boards and committees and many layers of approval. And at the end of it all, you just send in a one page report, like what you did with the money, how things went for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think bureaucratic foundations should experiment with that that structure much more. 
It allows for greater risk taking. Uh, we're funding a number of educational projects. I hope those pay off. I think that will help higher education in the future. Those include podcasts, for instance. Yeah. Uh, Emergent Ventures is not itself educational per se, but education we view as a priority area where we're helping people out. So I'm optimistic there's just so much more room for experimentation in education at all levels. Philanthropists do much in the area, but there are big bureaucracies working through other big bureaucracies. And at some margin, uh, we need just more entrepreneurship. Yeah. yeah. That's, um, I agree, yeah. Um, okay, let me see. So, um, I mean, as you know, at Cosmos School, we're mostly focusing on natural sciences like physics. Um, and, and obviously that's an area that interests me. So, you know, I was looking at some um, AP physics, uh, sorry, AP uh, advanced placement um, numbers. And it's striking to me that, that natural sciences are very low on the list of, of popular AP topics. And for me, you know, just a little bit of an indication of how high school students think about topics or how they choose what interests them. So, yes. um, you know, like, I think like the number one is like uh, English and the, not, the second one, like English language. And the second one is I think history. And, and um, so it's interesting what, you know, why is there such a small focus on natural sciences? For example, in California, physics is not even mandatory anymore to teach in high school, in public schools. So why do you, why is there such a small focus on natural sciences and is that good or is it bad? Well, I think there's a perception that the natural sciences are a lot of hard work and you don't necessarily get paid a whole lot at the end. So if you become a chemist, while I think you can get certainly a good job, it doesn't seem to be a path to riches. And very often those areas are reserved for immigrants or the children of immigrants, mm -hmm. who I would say on average are often willing to work harder. And they would regard like an upper middle class salary as more valuable than say a lot of American children would. Uh, I don't know if that's an efficient division of labor. It, you know, it may just be we're stuck with it and short of just willing that everyone work harder. I don't know how to fix that. Uh, you know, maybe the way to fix it is to have better immigration policy and make it easier for talented people and their children to enter the United States. And that way we'd get more chemistry uh, and electrical engineering majors. I would favor that. Mm -hmm. But to talk, you're kind of white kid whose family has been in the country many generations and thinks he'll be a lawyer or work on Wall Street. To talk that person into doing chemistry I'm not sure that's ever going to succeed. Well, well, I think it's because, um, yeah, you know, I know that from my own experience in high school that natural sciences often seem, as you said, like hard or like complicated or too abstract. Um, like English as a language is much more, you know, um, practical for most kids. Um, and, and therefore, you know, they, they don't really get motivated to learn more about physics or chemistry in school. Um, and then I also think it's really dependent on teachers. If there is a really good science teacher, I think they can have a huge impact on how many kids are excited about science yes, and yes. You know, decide to go into it more. Um, and, you know, like with Cosmos School, I think it's one of our goals is to 
make that make that more um, more approachable, more engaging. Um, give teachers a tool to to make it more engaging and more approachable for for the kids. So keep in mind when it comes to physics, the science itself has been somewhat stagnant. So it's not like the 1950s where you read about these great advances yeah. and then they put men on the moon. What you read about in the newspaper is like biomedicine is exciting. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the numbers, but I suspect we do have a lot of people going into that field. And maybe people just are not right now inspired by physics. Chemistry is a little different. I think the general area of material science, which can include chemistry, uh, is very active and very productive at the moment. and has a lot of immediate future potential. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure our media do a good job of articulating that. Everything's all about programming. You know, no. programming, that's great. But for an iPhone to work, like the glass shield and so on, there's remarkable technologies built into that. Yeah, that's true. Um, although I might, you know, maybe would like the space, kind of like the, the excitement for space, maybe rekindling again, maybe physics will come back again as um, maybe more specifically, you know, uh, astrophysics, stuff like that. Um, I hoping. hope, I, you know, I favor doing more uh, with our space program. It's not clear to me what we will do, but say to send probes to the moons of Saturn, uh, I would be a big advocate of that. That may end up helping biomedicine more than physics, but either way, I think it would uh, regenerate excitement about the sciences. Yeah, well, well, they want to have, you know, permanent people, uh, permanent base, uh, permanent base on the moon by 2024, I think, with the Artemis program. So let's see, NASA. Um, you know, I would sooner invest in, in robot probes to find life, but uh, you know, doing something's <laughs> better than nothing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we, should do, we should do both. <laughs> um, I think having like a base on the moon will help accelerate research in outer space also. Mm -hmm. It's much easier and less costly to to start from the moon than from the earth. <laughs> um, all right. Um, so yeah, just one interesting, you know, uh, AP fact I came across is that the computer science AP grew by 63% from 2017 to 2018, which is crazy, but not surprising. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. I've, um, a final question, and then we can look at some of the Twitter questions. Um, the, you know, I think it was yesterday the, the, or the day before the Nobel Prize for Physics uh, was awarded to um, to contributions to our understanding of the evolution of the universe and our place in the cosmos. To three people, um, one uh, one American, uh, James Peeble, and two Swiss, Michel Mayer and Didier Quellos. So that kind of like prompted me to look into um, more statistics about the Nobel Prize and, and Switzerland is uh, the third on the list of the highest Nobel Prize per capita third country in the world, which was quite interesting to me. Um, and if you look at the first two countries, um, they are like small countries. Um, I think San, San Lucia is one and uh, forgot the other one, but um, let me see. So the, the, yeah, the second one is Luxembourg and they both have like a very small population. Tiny, tiny, yeah. So yeah. Switzerland's basically number one. Exactly. They have a great culture for instilling discipline. I agree. Um, so, so my question, my, so I am Swiss as um, not every listener might know, but I'm Swiss and you know, um, I take a little pride in this. Um, 
and but like what what do you think is is the educational system a good predictor of the of the Nobel prizes per country or is it different factors have you ever looked into this i think you know a broader notion of culture so say we go back to the 1910s the 1920s and you look at what came out of vienna mm -hmm. around that era everything from wittgenstein to sigmund freud to gustav mahler uh, it's yeah. just phenomenal now i'm sure there were good viennese schools but I don't really think that explains it. It's a blending of cultures, a sense of excitement, a notion of being important, doing certain things for the first time, having impact. And uh, that's hard to replicate, and it's not mainly about your educational system. So uh, the Bay Area today has a, a good deal of that, and it stimulated creativity there. Uh, not many places in the world seem to be so important at the moment in that regard. So I, I would like that we study more of these highly creative artistic and cultural milieus and see what led to that. Mm -hmm. So only some of it's schooling. You know, I think treating your culture as fixed, it's very hard to improve your schooling. You've got to improve both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And Switzerland, I think a lot of its scientific excellence is in very disciplined areas you know, pharmaceuticals, biomedicine, a lot of kind of rigorous, long hours work. I don't think of Swiss science as excelling in the completely outside the box idea, uh, the kind of rigorous application. Yeah, It's been phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, that definitely, definitely mirrors the Swiss culture. <laughs> and you think about startups, you know, Switzerland is not amazing for out-of-the-box unicorn startups, but it is amazing for research in the biosciences. But even then, like Northern Switzerland does much, much better than the other parts of Switzerland. There's a kind of like triangle, as you know, like Basel, Zurich, Luzern, mm -hmm. what's sort of in between those cities, more or less, with a bit on the fringes. That's where the action is. It's a very small area, but there's yeah. some magic there that say, you know, Italian Switzerland doesn't seem to have. Yeah. Um, well, if you ask the German-speaking um, Swiss, which I am, I'm from Zurich. You know, um, <laughs> the, the, there's this, there's this um, kind of like uh, notion that the that the, the French and the Italian are are lazy and drink wine the whole day. <laughs> I don't so, think that's true. I think it's some other cultural difference. Yeah. Uh, no. You know, arguably Italian Swiss work more hours at their jobs than German Swiss do, at least at the median. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, it is somehow a culture whose main achievement is to create leisure opportunities for other cultures. And that's probably not so good for science. If you yeah. go to Lugano, yeah. right, somewhat of a retirement city, it's a little too pleasant in some ways, wonderful sun, uh, much better weather than Northern Switzerland. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I think- Basel's not that attractive, right? That's one of its great virtues. I personally yeah. like a lot how it looks, but it's not a beautiful city in the superficial sense. Um, well, so, well, I personally think some parts of it, but um, it's just a small city. And um, I think for like, if you were to, to choose where to live, I think Zurich is much more interesting, um, you know, stuff that you can do, the arts. Um, and then Basel is like a 45 minute train right away. So it doesn't really, doesn't really matter <laughs> but um yeah 
just has more to offer, I think, Zurich than than Basel. That's uh, that's that's clear. Um, also, like if you, you know, startups mm. are, are definitely like I did a startup before in Switzerland, so I know the scene a little bit. Um, you know, compared to Silicon Valley, where I also lived, it's like it's night night and day. It's like there are maybe 10 good venture capital firms in Switzerland and mm-hmm. you know, you've talked to all of them in, in one afternoon and then that's it. Um, so, but like there are a lot of spin-off companies from like the ETH or the APFL in Lausanne um, where a lot of innovation comes from there. You know, they've got a lot of money because they are financed by um, the, the federal government, not, the, not like the other schools by the state government. Um, by the cantonal government so they have deep pockets and they invest a lot in research and they really help people who work on those research projects they incentivize them to you know take spin it off make a startup and then support them during that time in the first couple of years strongly so a lot of of this high-tech innovation from switzerland comes from those spin-off companies that's super interesting overall i think the world should study switzerland much much more there's hardly one really good book on it in English. That's crazy. What's your, is there one good book in English about Switzerland? There's one pretty good book. I forget the title, uh, but it's not a really good book or I would remember the title. But if you want to read, like, why is Switzerland 25, 30% wealthier than most of the rest of Western Europe? There's no single good place you can go to. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I should, I should look into that. Let's see. Let's Maybe see if there's in a German, good German book. Something, but uh, yeah. people have stopped talking about Switzerland because it doesn't fit a lot of the standard political narratives. S- such as? Well, it, you know, the left loves to talk about Sweden and Denmark, which have bigger government than the US. But to talk about Switzerland, which is strongly bourgeois virtue and smaller government, is a bit of an embarrassment. The US right, which is now quite nationalistic, they don't really like to point to external models when all the rhetoric is make America great again, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Switzerland ends up kind of orphaned ideologically in American political debate. But my goodness, do you hear about Sweden and Denmark a lot these days? But Switzerland is considerably richer and arguably better run. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So um, let's see. We've had a couple of questions on t- Twitter. Um, I thought it was interesting. The first one, let me see. Um, someone asked, if I go back a decade or even five years ago, it is assumed that MOOCs would take over advanced education. This view now seems in full retreat. Is this a case of market timing or is there something larger at play the earlier forecasts didn't take into account? I don't think MOOCs will ever be a dominant form. MOOCs are for people who are already educated like upper middle class, maybe slightly bored or slightly boring, kind of drone-like people mm-hmm. who want to just hear themselves talk. I mean, it's fine. They're a useful service. Uh, the main MOOC companies don't seem to have made money. I think mm-hmm. more rapid fire, intense, interactive technologies that are more than just talking and use the properties of YouTube, virtual reality, interactive nature of the internet, like shifting curves and economics. I think those are the wave of the future. Not a bunch of people plugged in talking to each other. Yeah. But you know, yeah. if some people want it, great. <laughs> uh, I agree. Um, another question was, um, 
what effect will homeschooling, microschooling, and other innovations on equality of opportunity and on the long run on, e on equality of in income and wealth? So well, that word right? equality is very tricky. I think homeschooling, microschooling, they will boost opportunity for millions of people. Uh, that's a very good thing. I don't think they'll do it for everything. If the parents are not supportive, it's probably not going to work. So in some regards, inequality will go up. If you elevate some of the current poor, but not all of them, you create a new gap between the elevated ones and those who are still poor. So I don't think equality is the right goal. It's just spreading benefits to the maximum number of human beings. And they're, they're doing that already. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a big fan of Kelly Smith's uh, Prenda Microschooling Project in Arizona. That seems to be going well. Yeah. That um, yeah, that um, yeah. I talked to him at the last at the last um, con uh, conference, yeah. So um, it was quite interesting. I'm planning on having him on the podcast too. So oh, great! Should be interesting. If you do that, send me the link. I'll listen to it. Great. I will. I will. Um, yeah. Well. Cool. So I think um, we're running out of time. So I just want to thank you. Um, and if people want to learn more about, you know, emergent ventures, do you still take applications? Absolutely. They can just Google the two words, emergent ventures. And in closing, I'd like to put in a plug for what you're doing. I think science education is very, very important. I think virtual reality is at least possibly a breakthrough area and that you're in on this at such an early stage. Uh, I hope this has a massive impact. Thank you very much. I, I hope so too. <laughs> Um, you know, people always say, um, seems to be that we're too early. And I think, I think we are a little bit super early. Um, but for me, this is part of, um, you know, part of like innovation is not going to happen by itself. I think it needs people to kind of like actively work on it in the too early phase to yes. push it forward. Too early is where the action is. And if you look at the history of great scientific and cultural movements, uh, the two early people were really the ones making the big breakthroughs. And that means, in fact, they weren't too early at all. <laughs> exactly. So that's, uh, um, that's, I think that's a good closing. Um, um, thank you very much, Tyler. And um, looking forward to, you know, who else will be on Emergent Ventures in the future. Great. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks.